This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 2, Chapter 1. Through the fall and revolt of Adam, the whole human race made accursed and degenerate of original sin. Sections 4. In considering this latter part, two points to be considered. 1. How it happened that Adam involved himself and the whole human race in this dreadful calamity. This the result not of sensual intemperance, but of infidelity, the source of other heinous sins, which led to revolt from God, from whom all true happiness must be derived, in enumeration of the other sins produced by the infidelity of the first man. 5. The second point to be considered is the extent to which the contagious influence of the fall extends. It extends, one, to all the creatures, though unoffending, and two, to the whole posterity of Adam. Hence, hereditary corruption, or original sin, and the deprivation of a nature which was previously pure and good. This deprivation communicated to the whole posterity of Adam, but not in the way supposed by the Pelagians and Celestians. 6. Deprivation communicated not merely by imitation, but by propagation. This proved, one, from the contrast drawn between Adam and Christ, confirmation from passages of Scripture, and two, from the general declaration that we are the children of wrath. 7. Objection, that if Adam's sin is propagated to his posterity, the soul must be derived by transmission. Answer, another objection, in the face that children cannot derive corruption from pious parents. Answer. Section 4. As the act which God punished so severely must have been not a trivial fault, but a heinous crime, it will be necessary to attend to the peculiar nature of the sin which produced Adam's fall, and provoked God to inflict such fearful vengeance on the whole human race. The common idea of sensual intemperance is childish. The sum and substance of all virtues could not consist in abstinence from a single fruit, Amid a general abundance of every delicacy, it could be desired, the earth with happy fertility, yielding not only abundance, but also endless variety. We must therefore look deeper than sensual intemperance. The prohibition to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a trial of obedience, that Adam, by observing it, might prove his willing submission to the command of God. For the very term shows the end of the precept to have been to keep him contented with his lot, and not allow him arrogantly to aspire beyond it. The promise which gave him hope of eternal life as long as he should eat of the tree of life, and, on the other hand, the fearful denunciation of death the moment he should taste of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, were meant to prove and exercise his faith. Hence it is not difficult to infer in what way Adam provoked the wrath of God. Augustine, indeed, is not far from the mark when he says in Psalm 19 that pride was the beginning of all evil, because had not man's ambition carried him higher than he was permitted, he might have continued in his first estate. A further definition, however, must be derived from the kind of temptation which Moses describes, when, by the subtlety of the devil, the woman faithlessly abandoned the command of God, her fall obviously had its origin in disobedience. This Paul confirms when he says that by the disobedience of one man all were destroyed. 
At the same time, it is to be observed that the first man revolted against the authority of God, not only in allowing himself to be ensnared by the wiles of the devil, but also by despising the truth and turning aside to lies. Assuredly, when the word of God is despised, all reverence for him is gone. His majesty cannot be duly honored among us, nor his worship maintained in its integrity, unless we hang as it were upon his lips. Hence, infidelity was at the root of the revolt. From infidelity, again, sprang ambition and pride, together with ingratitude, because Adam, by longing for more than was allotted him, manifested contempt for the great liberality with which God had enriched him. It was surely monstrous impiety that a son of earth should deem it little to have been made in the likeness, unless he were also made the equal of God. If the apostasy by which man withdraws from the authority of his Maker, nay, petulantly shakes off his allegiance to him, is a foul and execrable crime, it is in vain to extenuate the sin of Adam. Nor was it simple apostasy. It was accompanied with foul insult to God, the guilty pair assenting to Satan's calumnies when he charged God with malice, envy, and falsehood. In fine, infidelity opened the door to ambition, and ambition was the parent of rebellion, man casting off the fear of God and giving free vent to his lust. Hence, Bernard truly says that in the present day, a door of salvation is opened to us when we receive the gospel with our ears, just as by the same entrance, when thrown open to Satan, death was admitted. Never would Adam have dared to show any repugnance to the command of God if he had not been incredulous as to his word. The strongest curb to keep all his affections under due restraint would have been the belief that nothing was better than to cultivate righteousness by obeying the commands of God and that the highest possible felicity was to be loved by him. Man, therefore, when carried away by the blasphemies of Satan, did his very utmost to annihilate the whole glory of God. Section 5 As Adam's spiritual life would have consisted in remaining united and bound to his Maker, so estrangement from him was the death of his soul. Nor is it strange that he who perverted the whole order of nature in heaven and earth deteriorated his race by his revolt. The whole creation groaneth, said St. Paul, being made subject to vanity not willingly. Romans 8, 20 and 22. If the reason is asked, there cannot be a doubt that creation bears part of the punishment deserved by man, for whose use all other creatures were made. Therefore, since through man's fault a curse has extended above and below over all the regions of the world, there is nothing unreasonable in its extending to all his offspring. After the heavenly image in man was effaced, he not only was himself punished by a withdrawal of the ornaments in which he had been arrayed, that is, wisdom, virtue, justice, truth, and holiness, and by the substitution in their place of those dire pests, blindness, impotence, vanity, impurity, and unrighteousness, but he involved his posterity also, and plunged them in the same wretchedness. This is the hereditary corruption to which early Christian writers gave the name of original sin, meaning by the term the deprivation of a nature formerly good and pure. The subject gave rise to much discussion, there being nothing more remote from common apprehension than that the fault of one should render all guilty and so become a common sin. This seems to be the reason why the oldest doctors of the church only glance obscurely at the point, or at least do not explain it so clearly as it required. 
This timidity, however, could not prevent the rise of a Pelagius with his profane fiction that Adam sinned only to his own hurt, but did no hurt to his posterity. Satan, by thus craftily hiding the disease, tried to render it incurable. But when it was clearly proved from Scripture that the sin of the first man passed to all his posterity, recourse was had to the cavil, that it passed by imitation and not by propagation. The orthodoxy, therefore, and more especially Augustine, labored to show that we are not corrupted by acquired wickedness, but bring an innate corruption from the very womb. It was the greatest impudence to deny this. But no man will wonder at the presumption of the Pelagians and Celestians, who has learned from the writings of that holy man how extreme the effrontery of these heretics was. Surely there is no ambiguity in David's confession. I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51.5 His object in the passage is not to throw blame on his parents, but the better to commend the goodness of God towards him. He properly reiterates the confession of impurity from his very birth. As it is clear that there was no peculiarity in David's case, it follows that it is only an instance of the common lot of the whole human race. All of us, therefore, descending from an impure seed, come into the world tainted with the contagion of sin. Nay, before we behold the light of the sun, we are in God's sight defiled and polluted. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one, says the book of Job. Job 14.4 Section 6 We thus see that the impurity of parents is transmitted to their children, so that all without exception are originally depraved. The commencement of this depravity will not be found until we ascend to the first parent of all as the fountainhead. We must therefore hold it for certain that in regard to human nature, Adam was not merely a progenitor, but as it were, a root, and that accordingly, by his corruption, the whole human race was deservedly vitiated. This is plain from the contrast which the apostle draws between Adam and Christ. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.19-21 To what quibble will the Pelagians here recur? That the sin of Adam was propagated by imitation. Is the righteousness of Christ then available to us only insofar as it is an example held forth for our imitation? Can any man tolerate such blasphemy? But if, out of all controversy, the righteousness of Christ, and thereby life, is ours by communication, it follows that both of these were lost in Adam, that they might be recovered in Christ, whereas sin and death were brought in by Adam, that they might be abolished in Christ. There is no obscurity in the words, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Accordingly, the relation subsisting between the two is this, as Adam, by his ruin, involved and ruined us, so Christ, by his grace, restored us to salvation. In this clear light of truth, I cannot see any need of a longer or more laborious proof. Thus, too, in the first epistle to the Corinthians, when Paul would confirm believers in the confident hope of the resurrection, he shows that the life is recovered in Christ, which was lost in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22 Having already declared that all died in Adam, 
he now also openly testifies that all are imbued with the taint of sin. Condemnation indeed could not reach those who are altogether free from blame, but his meaning cannot be made clearer than from the other member of the sentence, in which he shows that the hope of life is restored in Christ. Everyone knows that the only mode in which this is done is when, by a wondrous communication, Christ transfuses into us the power of his own righteousness. As it is elsewhere said, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 15.22 Therefore, the only explanation which can be given of the expression, In Adam all died, is that he, by sinning, not only brought disaster and ruin upon himself, but also plunged our nature into like destruction, and that not only in one fault, in a matter not pertaining to us, but by the corruption into which he himself fell, he infected his whole seed. Paul never could have said that all are by nature the children of wrath, in Ephesians 2.3, if they had not been cursed from the womb. And it is obvious that the nature there referred to is not nature such as God created, but as vitiated in Adam. For it would have been most incongruous to make God the author of death. Adam, therefore, when he corrupted himself, transmitted the contagion to all his posterity. For a heavenly judge, even our Savior himself, declares that all are by birth vicious and depraved, when he says that that which is born of the flesh is fleshy. John 3.6 And that therefore the gate of life is closed against all until they have been regenerated. Section 7 To the understanding of this subject there is no necessity for an anxious discussion, which in no small degree perplex the ancient doctors, as to whether the soul of the child comes by transmission from the soul of the parent. It should be enough for us to know that Adam was made the depository of the endowments which God was pleased to bestow on human nature, and that therefore when he lost what he had received, he lost not only for himself but for us all. Why feel any anxiety about the transmission of the soul when we know that the qualities which Adam lost he received for us not less than for himself, that they were not gifts to a single man but attributes of the whole human race? There is nothing absurd, therefore, in the view that when he was divested, his nature was left naked and destitute, that he, having been defiled by sin, the pollution extends to all his seed. Thus, from a corrupt root, corrupt branches proceeding, transmit their corruption to the saplings which spring from them. The children, being vitiated in their parent, conveyed the taint to the grandchildren. In other words, corruption commencing in Adam is by perpetual descent conveyed from those proceeding to those coming after them. The cause of the contagion is neither in the substance of the flesh nor the soul, but God was pleased to ordain that those gifts which he had bestowed on the first man that man should lose as well for his descendants as for himself. The Pelagian cavil, as to the improbability of children deriving corruption from pious parents, whereas they ought rather to be sanctified by their purity, is easily refuted. Children come not by spiritual regeneration, but carnal descent. Accordingly, as Augustine says, both the condemned unbeliever and the acquitted believer beget offspring not acquitted, but condemned because the nature which begets is corrupt. Moreover, though godly parents do in some measure contribute to the holiness of their offspring, this is by the blessing of God, a blessing, however, which does not prevent the primary and universal curse of the whole race 
from previously taking effect. Guilt is from nature, whereas sanctification is from supernatural grace.